0: Welcome to She Persisted. I'm your host, Sadie Sutton. Every Friday, I post interviews about mental health, dialectical behavioral therapy, and teenage life. These episodes break down my mental health journey, teach skills to help you cope with life, and showcase testimonials from individuals, including teens just like you. Whether you've struggled yourself or just want to improve your mental fitness, this podcast is your inspiration to live a life you love and keep persisting. This week on She Persisted
1: addiction and mental health problems they don't they don't occur out of a vacuum they're not genetic they occur mm-hmm. out of a context they can ter- they occur out of family systems for that parent to see to become aware of of those impossible situations that they've created for their children and to understand why they've snapped to under- to understand why they've withdrawn to understand mm-hmm. why they have escaped all of the The research shows that more empathetic, more kind of non-directive, non-controlling techniques and the therapeutic bond itself more than any particular modality is what creates good outcomes.
0: This week's DBT skill is the chain analysis skill. A chain analysis is a way to examine your problem behaviors to figure out what prompted them, how you could have been more effective with your skills usage, and understand how that problem behavior had consequences in your life. The first thing we're going to look at is your vulnerability going into the interaction. If you are hungry, not well slept, if you have been lacking on getting exercise and moving, so that's also impacting your physical health, these are all things that could make you more vulnerable to being reactive rather than responsive. Other things that could lead to vulnerability are if you are already sensitive about a certain topic, you are feeling already emotionally aroused and distressed, so you're more reactive. The next thing we're going to look at is your trigger. What caused the problem behavior? What was the problematic event that then led to this behavior happening? At this point, you can also go ahead and describe what happened when you engaged in this problematic behavior. Was it an argument you got into? Was a comment that was made? What behavior did you engage in? Kind of breaking that down. Who, what, when, where, why, how? Doing the same thing for the triggering event. Next thing we're gonna do is look at the links in our chain analysis. These are all the things that happened between the triggering event and your problem behavior where you could have potentially implemented skills. If you were getting in an argument with someone and you're looking at the chain of events where you're both going back and forth and saying things you could have potentially implemented some deep breathing or pausing and taking a step back, maybe some validation. So that's a quick example of how you can implement it. From there, we're gonna look at what happened after this interaction. Going back to this argument example, did you have to repair the relationship? Was that person treating you differently for a couple of days because of that argument? Did you have a negative mood for the next couple of hours due to the argument? We're gonna look at all of these things and figure out how it impacted your life. So that's a chain analysis. You're able to better understand why and how you engaged in problematic behaviors and how in the future you can implement different skills to avoid engaging in that behavior. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode. I'm so excited for this episode. I just have to start off with that. This might be my favorite episode that I've ever recorded. It is just phenomenal. Every single second is filled with value and insight and I just love this conversation being like, oh my gosh. So before we get into that, kind of unpacking this week a little bit, doing a little bit of a check-in moment, I went back to school for the first time since we went into lockdown. Over a year later, I'm finally going back for the first day of my senior year in person and it was so much fun. I am so much more engaged and have a better mood. I'm feeling more energized and productive being able to get up and 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 go places and still do all these things that I love. And So I'm really happy to be back at school. So I don't want to make this intro too long because I want to have this episode be as much about this interview as possible. So we're going to dive into our Q&As really quick and then we'll jump right in. First question was how do you work on your habits? I talked about this a little bit last week about how I'm working to improve my self-discipline by setting reinforcements that make me excited, whether that's visuals or to-do lists, check boxes, things that may bring me a lot of joy but aren't necessarily significant to someone else. And the next thing is to set measurable goals at certain dates. So my goal for this past week was to do two workouts. So I said, okay, by Friday at 6 p.m. I'll do one workout and by Tuesday at 4 p.m. I'll do the second workout and I could go over that. I could do more than one workout and I ended up doing four workouts last week and I still met my goal on the time frame and so that was something that was really enjoyable and, and effective as far as habits. I think the big Biggest tip is to be really aware of the habits that you are, you're tracking. And I do this in my bullet journal where I write down what habits I'm tracking every month, whether that's getting up out of bed at a certain time or getting to sleep and unplugging at a certain time, things like that, or or studying for a certain number of hours, whatever it is that I'm trying to increase or decrease, having them in front of you and checking in on them daily is a great reminder to, to build those habits and also keep track of where you're at with them. So adding check-ins in your planner, having them on your schedule, different ways where you're visually reminded to practice these habits and check in on how you're doing with them is really effective. And then the the last tip I'll give on this is to try and build habits that you enjoy. I think anything that we do, if we don't get value from it or, or enjoy it, it's really hard to to get any energy from it and want to continue doing it and have the change be long lasting. So even if it's something like studying, having it be associated with something fun, like after you study for an hour, you'll reward yourself by watching a certain TV episode and you'll only watch that TV show when you've studied. So kind of pairing it with things that are enjoyable or making studying fun if you really like visuals, doing like thought maps, that kind of thing. So it is enjoyable for you and it's not just another task that you have to get done that you'll eventually end up avoiding. Next question is advice on being sad about leaving your friends in college. Totally relate to this one. I am definitely very excited to go to college in the fall or actually this summer um, in August, but I'm definitely nervous. I've made a lot of really great friendships here and I'm I'm sad to miss everyone. I also have moved to boarding school and then moved back home and had to kind of let go of those relationships. And I think what I keep coming back to is that when you've built a really strong friendship And you've built a a healthy relationship and and you have confidence in that and trust and it's a great relationship on both sides. You're able to re-enter interactions and it feels like no time has passed. You can call them up, you can visit them and your friendship is just as strong and, and it feels like no time has gone by. So I think... My, my advice relating to that would be partially having trust that you'll still be able to see these people and and have these interactions that that you love and being able to to support them and be connected and also focusing on just continuing to strengthen that rather than suffering twice and being overwhelmed by by the anxiety and apprehension about what if you you aren't friends anymore and you don't talk at all and then when that eventually happens you've gone through that emotional experience twice And then my second piece of advice is that especially with something like college where there are so many different people from all over that that you'll get along with or you won't get along with, you will find your people, you will find your tribe, you will find your community. So regardless of what happens with your friends at home, you're going to find some amazing relationships and some amazing friendships and those can really come into your life in a way that, that you're feeling the loss from your other friends. So I think really diving into that, working on building those relationships rather than staying attached to other friends that are kind of have moved away or are in different parts of the country at school. And of course, not to say that you shouldn't shouldn't keep in touch with people or call them or anything like that, but but I think one of the way that I'm going to approach college is to really, really work on building my relationships while there and building great friendships that I can have for the next four years. So that is all the questions that I'm going to answer this week. So diving into this week's interview, today's guest is Evan Haynes. Evan is the co-founder of Aloe House and a leader in the compassionate care model, as well as being a very active member in the recovery community. After his own journey to sobriety, he now works with individuals to help them obtain and maintain sobriety through compassion rather than control. So if you guys want to check out more of Evan's work, you can go to alorecovery.com or follow him on Instagram at, at It's Evan Haynes. And as always, links to anything mentioned by Evan and Aloe House and all of these amazing resources will be in today's show notes. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today on She Persisted.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm so happy to be here and... and... Thank you for inviting me.
0: Of course. So, can you tell me a little bit about you and your story, what led you to becoming sober and working in the recovery industry?
1: Yeah, so I've been alive for like 46 years and I guess I've been sober for about 15. So, I was 30 when I realized my life was falling apart a little bit or at least I wasn't it wasn't going the way I Maybe felt it should, and i'll I'll back up a little bit, you know, but to sort of set it up in a nonlinear kind of Quentin tarantino uh movie type thing, imagine I'm in jail in l a county jail, and I've imagined maybe there's been some horrible mistake, although you know i I had kind of come to out of a blackout in handcuffs on a curb after uh, a car accident where I'd hit a car with a person in and I mean thank God nobody was hurt. Yeah. Um, I could have killed somebody. And that was kind of where I was at. That's what my life had kind of come to. I'm I'm a, a a nice guy. I'm sort of intelligent. And that was kind of the best I could do. So backing up and kind of telling you how at least I think I got there. I grew up, I think, like a lot of f- families do nowadays in a home where, where there were people suffering from Mental health problems, addiction problems, divorce, some of the things I think we think are normal. You know, it turns out can be difficult, difficult for, for a child and for maybe a sensitive child like myself. I was an only child, definitely introverted, shy. And, you know, and, and, and I grew up visiting my mom in, in psychiatric hospitals. She was a wonderful woman, she was highly intelligent, mm-hmm. hilarious. One of the most incredible artists maybe ever this beautiful stylish unique person and, and, she, and she struggled she had had her difficulties in in childhood and when i was 14 she took her life she took her life and i remember i mean the day literally the day before you know just despite all these adversities i was still fairly solid i had a good group of friends i was actually at a birthday party and I remember I wanted to stay overnight, and we were having a pool party and pizza and watching movies, and, and I called my dad. my parents had been split up, and I called my dad to ask if I could stay over, and he says, mm-hmm. "You know, you, you need to come home. We're going to come pick you up." him and my stepmom. And somehow, I was sitting out there in the curb, and I just knew it. I, I Your knew heart my mom. dropped. And, yeah I, I just knew before they got there, I knew what happened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I, I knew she was dead. And I loved her. I mean, we were very close. I would live with her on the weekends, Mm -hmm. and uh, we'd go see movies, and go to McDonald's, and go to the park, and just hang out and watch TV. We 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 were really close. Mm -hmm. And I knew it. And my dad told me. And I think I'd lost my grandma like a year before, where I'd cried and bawled. My grandma Mm. was really this rock for me, and and was so loving and stable, you know. But by the time my mom died, I, I I remember even at her funeral, I didn't, I didn't shed a tear. I didn't cry. I was just shut down. I shut down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And almost. So I wonder,
0: next... you talked about being super sensitive. And I'm wondering if you were as sensitive when you were grieving that second time, or it was just completely internalized?
1: Well, a hundred percent. And I, and it was just too much. It was just too much. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't cry until I was like 35 years old. I mean, I might've cried once, but I mean, bald, mm-hmm. like sort of yeah. appropriately for something so so painful I was telling a friend who had suffered from mental health problems who had attempted suicide a few times and that she'd survived and I was mm-hmm. telling her and I, I started reading her this letter that a doc, our family doctor had written me about me and my mom and my mom and I could feel it coming up and I was like oh my gosh as I'm talking I just started yeah. bawling bawling mm-hmm. I bawled like that Recently, Alexis, who you know, and we have mm-hmm. done a like a staycation at the Four Seasons near our house. I guess that was Valentine's Day, so February. Watch this movie, if you're if you ever have a chance, called Paris, Texas, direct, directed by Vim Benders. And there's this scene at the end where this mother is reunited with her son and my mom was I mean I can get chills just thinking about it and mm-hmm. I asked Alexa she turned around and I'm bawling. I did it She's again. Like, what so, is going on? So I, exactly. i she'd never seen me cry in my life and I did it mm-hmm. again, just you know, what was that a month not even a month or two ago. Mm-hmm. So though not knowing how to deal with these feelings from that age, where I'm literally calling like my bad friends, my sort of like emo friends the next day after that, you know, I'm with my sure goody goody friends one day and my sort of goth emo friends the next day. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of set me off. It was cigarettes, it was weed, it was LSD, and it was alcohol and. Ephedrine pills and whatever. But I mean I went to school, I went to college. Things started definitely falling apart by the time I was I was supposed to write my master's thesis and I kinda struggled with that. I I turned a two year masters program into like a six year ordeal. (laughs) But then I moved to LA and I didn't know I had a problem until honestly I moved here. I'd before that accident I'd drove drunk frequently and you know, I would drive up against a bunch of parked cars and I mean, I was a mess. It was just a total mm-hmm. mess. And I lost any sense of, you know, the kind of things that matter or just a, a sense of passion or values or wonder, awe. all these things I think are kind of essential to our mental health and certainly a sense of belonging and a sense of being safe or a sense of, I don't even know what what necessarily what these things are except I know when I feel them
0: it's like living um, you're either moving like through emotions or you you're living
1: you're living and I, I my life I think had become really just so one-dimensional and so I was sentenced by a judge to AA and I remember like my first meeting and there was a girl speaking at the podium and just the way she talked and the words she was using and I was like looking around, there was all these other cool people. And I'm like, these are my people. And I found, Mm -hmm. I found my people, all these other people just like me. And it felt great. I mean, it took me another five years to kind of like find my people, you know, so anyone who was in recovery, who's in AA, maybe doesn't like the meetings, my my advice is to keep looking. And, Mm -hmm. you know, eventually, when I found that crew of people, those are still my best friends to this day, that was 10 years ago. That was where I met Alexis out of that community and my life just kind of blossomed. And that's, you know, that's where we started uh, Aloe House at the time, about 10 years ago. In fact, June 1st, it'll, it'll have been 10, 10 years.
0: Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. That it's, it's very interesting. And I kind of want to ask you about that community aspect of it. It's, I've heard so many times that it's crucial for recovery. And you say you found like your true community years later. Do you think that your initial community was just as beneficial in your journey and then you you had different needs that were met later on, or it was you just waited to find your people for for a while?
1: That's a really good question i I know it was kind of like that in the beginning like that first meeting I went to it was like celebrities it was like cool people they were never i mean i I could have done more to kind of reach out or try mm-hmm. to make friends but i I never felt totally welcomed. Things weren't clicking. It was Mm -hmm. enough. It was enough that for whatever it was, an hour a day, an hour and a half a day, I could immerse myself. I eventually started going to like, say, a men's meeting where, you know, you would sit in a circle and everyone would share. So for the first Mm year, I, I didn't say a word and I would go, but I would listen to speakers, these like really like inspiring, uplifting speakers. And that was kind of enough, you know, and then I went to the men's groups where I could share. I was, I had to you know, and then I started making friends or someone, you know, to take me through the steps or, you know, or I would go out for lunch after or go for coffee after. really wasn't until that kind of five-year mark, and I think I'd had like a, an AA sponsor at the time who said, you know, you really got to go get a commitment, and I think I was moving to Malibu, and I found this meeting that was outside at this Franciscan monastery overlooking the ocean with the mountains all around you under the blue sky and I was like I'm going to go to that meeting and I asked <laughs> the old the old guy who used to set it up I said hey can I have a commitment and he goes yeah sure you can set up the chairs so I would go like every day and set up the chairs and then you know what's funny it, it that's where I met my friends and eventually met Alexis but it, that wasn't quite it the catalyst was it was before we started Aloe House, basically my life fell apart. Uh, Jared, my business partner here, my best friend and I, we like lost everything. We were in the film business and we failed like in this kind of ball of flames and just <laughs> went down and lost all the money we had and this idea we were going to make a movie and it just, it totally um just disappeared and so then i really dove in i dove in and i would share about this honestly that you know my life's falling apart but i'm not going to drink or use about it and here i am and people started the first time ever you know uh, someone would come and ask me to take them through the steps and i was like oh my god like i finally really after five years it took understood what kind of aa was about and that's fine i mean no one, anyone who's kind of in early recovery, I don't think needs to necessarily worry about sort of timelines or what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, AA didn't start like that. It wasn't about that. It was about it was about community. It was just about being with other people. So, so to answer your question, and it's a great question. I think that my needs must have increased, and especially at that crisis point, because you know, just because you're sober doesn't mean bad things aren't going to happen. And yeah. here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm in recovery, I'm sober, and I'm having a total crisis, my whole world's falling apart, then I needed to dive in. And it turned out as I dove in, I became more useful. Really, what it was is, I found out I wasn't that kind of identity, who I thought I was, I thought I was this kind of sober guy who's now going to be a filmmaker, and all these things that I thought kind of made me what I was. And gave me my value, it turned out that those things weren't what I was. And what I was was someone who could, no matter what I was going through, still kind of be there for other people that in that we can kind of go through these things together. And that's mm-hmm. that's what it was.
0: Totally. So you mentioned early recovery versus when you, you've been sober for a while. And I wanted to ask kind of a two part question, one being, mm-hmm. what early recovery is like that emotional experience and then when that shift takes place what's so different when are you finally past that threshold where you're like I'm no longer early recovered I've made it I'm I'm sober and and I'm gonna I've been this way for a while what's that difference
1: it's a really good question so I remember I was obviously sentenced to AA but I happened to like it like I would take my court card to get signed after the meeting, you know, uh, and it's for the people who have to go, not the people who mm-hmm. want to go. But I would say, no, 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 I want to be here. I know you're signing this, but don't worry, I'll be here. They're like, oh, okay, like, <laughs> don't care, and, uh, you know, and then so I felt at home and, and, and I, I never would have thought I could do that for 15 years. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe a year. I mean, I, I wasn't, honestly, wasn't, I guess, thinking like that. I thought though, I remember before I even went to my first meeting, I thought, if I can just learn to be comfortable in social situations, that would be huge. That that would be huge. And then after kind of going to those first meetings, I'm seeing people putting away chairs or talking to new people or doing all, making coffee, whatever it was. And I thought I added one more goal. I thought if I could just learn to be useful. So I had these sort of twin goals, if I could be comfortable in social situations and be useful, that maybe I would stick around to, to sort of see what happens. And mm-hmm. and that's what I did. And I stuck around and I guess both of those things happened. So, you know, when, when did it change? When did I know I was like in the clear? It's different. It's going to be different for, for everyone. Like not everyone kind of goes to their first meeting and is like, I'm home. Like, I mean, I remember before I went to my first meeting, even the morning after my last night drinking where I would like cleared a table of food at a Mel's diner and was trying to fight everybody. And, you know, I was uh, in bare feet and I was diving into bushes and stuff like that. (laughs) My friend walks into my bedroom the next morning and he's recounting all these things I did. And I'm like, Oh my God, I did do that. Didn't I? And this was only a week by the way, after I'd been arrested and gone to LA Mm -hmm. County jail. So, and where I had, remember i remember telling my cellmate in jail i said i think i, I think i have a problem I, I think i gotta switch to beer and i did and i did the first night i was out and the second night and the third night i had a shot at the bar and it's kind of the last thing i remember and so my friend walks in and he tells me all these things and he goes i think you're an alcoholic and i was like i am an alcoholic like and i was like relieved i was like calling people like guess what i'm an alcoholic like i was happy that that I finally had like a word for this You're thing It's so that I was. validating.
0: You're like it's, so it's validating not in my head. Mm-hmm.
1: that there's like something I can like kind of identify or or attach to that there's a vocabulary that I can that I can mm-hmm. use to to talk about what's what's happening and and I still think that's true. So it's it's not going to be like that. I know there's people who struggle and and so I've never had like a a, a I'd never had like a relapse per se, where I know people who have and they struggle and they're kind of like back back and forth and that kind of almost becomes their thing. So my version of it, you know, may not kind of work for everyone. I just happened to like get it right right away
0: mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm.
1: and 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 loved it.
0: Yeah, this week's episode is brought to you by Sakara. You guys know how much I'm stressing the importance of good sleep, good nutrition, getting outside, staying active, because when we don't take care of our physical health, our mental health truly suffers as well. I know that my emotional vulnerability is off the charts when I'm not taking care of my physical health. I can't be productive. My relationships struggle and everything just becomes a mess. Sakara is a nutrition company that focuses on overall wellness, starting with what you eat. The organic, ready-to-eat meals are made with powerful plant-based ingredients, and they're designed to boost your energy, improve digestion, and get your skin glowing. Their meals are delivered all around the U.S., ready to eat, at your door, and you are good to go. They also have some amazing wellness essentials, like one of my favorites, their sleep tea, which you know I love a good cup of tea before bed to keep my sleep hygiene in check. They also have things like beauty chocolates, like chocolate that you eat to help your skin, like literally mind-blown so many different supplements, teas, powders, granola, all of that kind of stuff. To get your hands on their amazing products, you can go to sakara.com and use code XOSADY at checkout for 20% off. Again, that's sakara.com. Use code XOSADY at checkout for 20% off your first order. Kind of a random question, but you said you used drugs as well as drinking. Mm -hmm. What makes it so that you identify as an alcoholic and rather as a drug addict or what kind of help someone make that differentiation?
1: So that's a very good question. I happen to probably drink more than I did drugs. I happen to do drugs. So I identify, you know, identify with like kind of winos or, you mm-hmm. know, alcoholics. I could, I remember I would go to dinner parties and I could drink probably at least a couple of bottles of wine and I would get like physically anxious as I watched like those other bottles go down. I'm watching everyone else drink and like, like we gotta get out of here. Like the liquor store is going to close. Like mm-hmm. I, I definitely relate to. People who drink alcohol. I know there's people who more so relate to doing drugs. I think you know Bill Wilson, who founded AA, happened to, and Dr. Bob, uh, his his partner, happened to be alcoholics. But there was also uh, other people. I think in early AA, who who did do drugs, and they often went hand in hand. Like where Bill Wilson got sober was it was a place called Towns Hospital, in New York. It was very kind of fancy, and and the owner of the facility, Towns. He had some cure. It was called the belladonna cure. It was actually this kind of plant medicine, basically is what it was, that sent you into like a delirium and they would give you, they would administer this cure every hour for like 50 hours. Oh my god! And that's where Bill Wilson had his like white light experience, but I digress. <laughs> and that belladonna cure was originally meant for like narcotic addicts. And though Towns figured out it also happened to work for alcoholics. So they were treating both those people. But then what happened is people really identify, you know, that AA is for alcoholics. It's finally loosening up now where someone who's maybe doesn't even like alcohol, but they could identify as an alcoholic, go to an AA meeting, find all of the same benefits as they would at uh, say an NA meeting. Yeah. But the problem is an early AA, maybe not the earliest, but at some point maybe during the fifties or so mm-hmm. it, it I don't know exactly when it happened, but they became very exclusive. Like you had to be an alcoholic. Yeah. You can't. You can't talk about anything else here. They call it outside issues, uh, and some people are still like that. What then ended up happening actually is a guy named Chuck Diedrich, right down here in uh, Santa Monica, got into like a fight with AA. He was like a dope addict. He was a you know he was a narcotic addict, and he wasn't. He didn't feel welcome at AA, so he went and started this spinoff thing called Synanon which was actually this really kind of therapeutic
0: boarding schools and troubled teen industry yes yeah
1: you know about that so that's so that's the genesis really it was the fact that that chuck Diedrich wasn't accepted that led to all of that of course there's (laughs) you go way back into (laughs) the history of our mistreatment of people with mental health problems and yeah so that's why Chuck Diedrich's approach resonated is because yeah. it, it contains all of that violence and, and punishment and control and seemed perfectly natural. And of course, as we know, as people like Maya Salovitz have beautifully illustrated how that influence of Chuck Diedrich spread so from crazy. direct lines, you know, from from Synanon to Eagleville Hospital in Pennsylvania to Hazelden, which was Hazelden based on the AA model, basically. But now it's been hijacked by Synanon. And still to this day, addiction treatment, we don't even, people don't even know because they don't know where we've come from. They don't realize the degree to which Synanon has impacted and influenced our business, our business, our field.
0: It's insane. It's it's a topic I can just go into for hours because it mm-hmm. makes me so angry and you're never aware of it unless you've been like within the treatment industry and mm-hmm. had those experiences and seen it yourself because it's totally a hidden world. And unless it you is. have that emotional connection, you would never be like, huh, I wonder what happened there. And uh, the only
1: people that, that we seem to think it's okay to still use this approach with are poor people and children.
0: Yeah. It's,
1: and know, there's no... People- Poor, yeah. poor people and, and children of any kind of economic background.
0: It's terrible. I know right now there's 10,000 kids in troubled teen industry programs yeah. that are signed away because they don't have their own rights as an individual. Yeah. They're not an adult yet. And it's it's insane. They can be legally kidnapped and put into these programs for years. And yeah. you would never know unless you've you've known someone that's gone through it.
1: And parents think that they're, they don't know what to do. They're so lost and and they think that they're helping. So
0: much compassion because they're being told what they want to hear. They're being told we can help your child. We see this is not your fault. We've, we've done this before. We can, we can fix this. And that's Mm -hmm. all they want to hear is that their kid will be okay. Their worst fear has come true and someone's giving them the answer. And, and,
1: and and no one, I, I don't think. And so I'm writing a book right now called America is addiction. And I'm, I've learned so much. I had to, I'd learn so much in order to be able to say anything, you know. And <laughs> so one thing I I learned was sort of the history of how we treat people with mental health problems. And what was really interesting was that so up until about the 1400s, leprosy was a big problem in Europe. There was 19,000 um, of these leprosaria around Christian Europe where, you know, it was like a charity. We would help these people. We would keep them contained. But it was, it was also redemptive that our helping them would somehow redeem us, that it was both like kind of a sign of God's kind of punishment of them, which is this awful theory that like, you know, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good yeah. people. Well, if they have leprosy, well, they must have done something wrong, right? Which is the, uh, anyone who thinks that hasn't read like the book of Job, for example, that it's more complicated than, than that, of course. So these leprosaria, somehow around in the middle of the 1400s, leprosy was kind of cured. It just it kind of went away. These leprosaria were working. They were keeping it isolated, and it went away. And now they had these empty, 19,000 empty leprosaria. Well, it took took a 150, 200 years or so, but they started um, putting vagrants and people with basically mental health problems into these leprosaria, and it changed from charity to punishment and control. That they needed to be punished, and so, for example, in Paris, these this was the birth of the asylum, basically. And in Paris, it was called the General Hospital or the Hôpital Général. And whereas, in around fifteen hundred, there every European city had a had a wall around it and these gates, right? And so. They were called the archers and they would chase away all the vagrants and they would chase mm-hmm. them out into the woods. And, and they were called the archers because they would chase them with bow and arrows. And then they would, they would stand guards at the gates to make sure that they didn't come back into the city. Fifty years later, when the, when the general hospital opens up, they now were called the hospital archers or the archers of the poor. They would go out into the countryside and find vagrants and bring them back and put them oh, into the God. general hospital. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing in the middle of the night when they come grab someone and put them in a van. This is yeah. the history of, you know, and then so the, the asylum existed like that, you know, where they started in the around 1930s, started using lobotomies or electroconvulsive shock therapy or metrazole or diabetic comas, all of these horrible um, brain damaging therapeutics they were called until 1950 when Thorazine was brought to market which was basically a lobotomy in a pill. And that was the sort of birth of modern psychopharmacology, and mm-hmm. you know, which became a huge business. But the same spirit that people had to be managed, that they were somehow defective, that they were broken, that they were you know, uh, just of less value, and that this, these ideas persist, that there's something wrong with them, right? That they need to be more like mm-hmm. us.
0: And it's totally deflection. It's like, if they're not me, then I'm not associating with these issues. They don't resonate with me. It's totally a deflection thing, which is just so so crazy because if you you humanize and you validate and you relate to these experiences the other person is so much better off and but you would be accepting that you have the same the same problem
1: well exactly and and so that solution too and still the sort of way we understand addiction today which is that it's this chronic relapsing brain disease doesn't take into account the sort of context out of which addiction rises, we're starting to learn about adverse childhood experiences. We're starting to look about, you know, look at social determinants of health. And so my book originally was going to be to kind of promote these these new emerging ideas. I mean they're they're 20 years old now. Mm-hmm. And then if you think about it too, I mean even Freud was talking about the way our parents give us complexes. Yeah. And what I realized as I'm writing this is that's not enough. That, that yes that's that's a big part of it but there's something more. And so the, the ingredient that I added to the problem of addiction and how I understand addiction is I believe it's closely related to the disenchantment of the world and that we live in this really sick world and that you just pointed it out that, that it's a deflection. So addicts became the scapegoats because that's what, that's what the lepers were, right? We were able to put all of our kind of problems on them. Like they're the sick ones. They're the ones with the problems. They're the ones attracting God's wrath. And thank God it isn't us. You know, obviously we're the, we're the good ones. We're the ones God loves. And, and, and that tradition, I mean, goes way back. Obviously it's an ancient tradition where they would literally put all the sins of the community onto a goat ritualistically and send it out into the desert. And they were somehow redeemed and cleansed of, of of this negativity what's interesting actually is the greek word pharmacon for drug means both it means medicine it means poison and it means scapegoat they all come from the same root word so this is the idea that paracelsus the 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 alchemist says that the the sort of poison is in the dose or the medicine is in the dose that one substance take alcohol for example could be therapeutic in one dose and totally fatal in another dose, mm-hmm. but that 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 scapegoating is this kind of ritualistic spell. I mean, it's a spell that you kind of put. It's like a kind of sympathetic magic that is supposed yeah. to help us, but that you know we're 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 scapegoating the wrong people. And as we kind of create this paradise, say America is this utopia, and we're creating this paradise. Well, everyone who doesn't fit in, who's poor, or who's a person of color, or who's Mentally ill, which are these categories that we created hundreds of years ago or, or more, that they don't fit into our paradise. That 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 we that we keep having to build these gulags and these prisons. This was a mm-hmm. concept Milan uh, Kundera came up with that within the concept of paradise is kind of the the hell or the gulag because we keep excluding these people. Yeah. And so those walls around those cities and the leprosaria, we have to go back so far. So the last time we were kind of sane as a mm-hmm. culture, I mean, frankly, we might have to go back thousands of years in order to to get there. But it's it's crucial that we question everything about the way we live together and really who's good and who's bad and who's healthy and who's sick. Mm-hmm. It's It's... Frankly, it's this, uh, Alexis and I just watched the uh, Matrix over the weekend. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I hadn't watched it in 20 years, but that's what this is. And and it's that shock of waking up to kind of who we are, which is the process of recovery, right? Where we learn to kind of, I guess, accept ourselves and understand our, our darkness or whatever that is. Well, this is what America needs to do. We need to kind of wake up to the fact that we're not who we think we are. And it could be shocking, but it's crucial. It's crucial that mm-hmm. we accept ourselves in, in full.
0: Yeah. So I have two follow up questions. Mm-hmm. One being when all of these super unethical treatments are being instituted historically, whether it's lobotomies or over medication, transmedical stimulation, like all these kinds of things, asylums, is there clinical evidence at this point that's like, okay, maybe this is working? Or is it people? Well, are there just... always
1: was. I mean, each time one of these new techniques was was invented, mm-hmm. it was the thing. And only when a new thing was invented did we kind of say, oh no, no, we we didn't quite have that right. Now we <laughs> know this is the thing. But as far as like the therapeutic community model, what's interesting is there was no research that it ever worked. And in fact there was plenty of research that it didn't. Okay. It's more like a feeling. One study showed that it isn't even necessarily that a program has that philosophy that, that violent kind of punitive therapeutic community model you don't even need that you could have a fancy Malibu treatment center, but you could have staff who believe that people need to be punished that we're sending yeah. the wrong message that you know that we're rewarding bad behavior that we need to break them down before we can build them up all of these ideas are are, are, are either part of the program or they're just part of what the people who work in those programs because they've been through recovery because what was so funny is AA rejecting Chuck Diedrich. It's kind of like rejecting their own shadow, maybe that uh, those things we don't want to admit about ourselves. Well, it'll it'll come back and bite you. It's like a double-edged knife. You're cutting (laughs) a piece of, you know, bread or meat with a knife and it's Mm -hmm. cutting into your hand, you know, so it'll come back and that's what's happened to AA. And that, that synonym model, the Chuck Diedrich model really poisoned AA, where you have this very controlling sponsorship, like, I want you to call me before you brush your teeth in the morning. And it's this <laughs> kind of weird, like, mm-hmm. almost SM type relationship, yeah. which hey, if someone's into that, that's cool. But I think a lot of the people who are involved in it just think, well, this is just the way it is. Well, no. Yeah. The way it is is when Bill Wilson came to talk to Dr. Bob, who reluctantly agreed to hear this guy out for 15 minutes. He told his mm-hmm. wife, I'll, I'll listen to him for 15 minutes. and. Bill Wilson came and just talked with him. He didn't lecture him. He didn't tell him he needed to do anything different than what he was doing. And they ended up talking for hours and the rest was history. And it was really just them meeting as, as equals and, and talking. And I mean, they got into cool stuff. They were into seances and the I Ching and Bill Wilson was into psychedelic drugs and niacin and all this Mm. stuff. So you know, I don't think people realize really what, and and really what AA was, was, was a branch of the new thought movement and about the mind care movement and things like that. And about the power of our mind to heal and really about the power of fellowship and, and, and community. So anyway, I have lots of ideas about these things, (laughs) but there was no greater kind of poison in the, in the treatment world than Synanon and the therapeutic community model. And, and in fact, all of the The research shows that more empathetic, more kind of non directive, non controlling techniques and the therapeutic bond itself, more than any particular modality, is what creates good outcomes.
0: This week's episode is sponsored by Teen Counseling. I cannot tell you guys how many DMs, texts, emails I get from teens, parents, even friends asking, How can I find a therapist? How can I enroll in therapy? How can I find a therapist for my teen? How do I tell my parents I want to go to therapy? That's why I'm partnering with Teen Counseling. Teen Counseling is an online therapy program with over 14,000 licensed therapists in their network. They offer support on things like depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, and more, and it's all targeted at teens. They offer text, talk, and video counseling. So no matter what level of support you're looking for, they got you. You're going to go to teencounseling.com she persisted. You'll fill out a quick survey about what your goals are for therapy, whether that's improving your mental health during the pandemic, working on your relationship with your parents, improving self-esteem, whatever it is, they'll match you with therapists that fit your needs. You'll enter your information and your parents' information. Your parents will get a super discreet email saying your child's interested in working with a licensed therapist at teencounseling.com. They head to the website, learn a little bit more about the program and a preview to work with a therapist. And from there, you can meet with that therapist on a frequency that works for you. This is a great way to dip your toe into the therapy world and get support when you need it without having to go into an office, meet with a therapist, meet with a stranger and go through all of that for the first time. So you can go to teencounseling.com she persisted. Again, that's teencounseling.com slash she persisted to get started today. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting when you're talking about the treatment programs and how it's not necessarily the, the philosophies and values of the program themselves, but ne- maybe the staff that work there. And I that totally resonates because when I was at a therapeutic boarding school in Montana, I even since then going back and talking to the different people that run the program or our higher up staff, even when I was there those relationships were very authentic the the intentions were there they had the, the so much compassion and care for these kids and i always said like if if this staff member was every staff member there wouldn't be an issue but the the people that are spending 10 to 12 hours a day at a time with the girls 24/7 who are who are severely struggling are coming out of high school with a graduation barely a graduation looking for a minimum wage job in the middle of nowhere 5 minutes south of the canadian border because that's the only place it's hiring and so it's, it's And
1: you've heard of the Stanford prison experiment, right?
0: Yeah. Which
1: yeah. they had to shut down after a few weeks because it got way out of hand it and super so violent. Mm-hmm. There's something And again, I don't think it's because humans are necessarily violent and controlling. I think it's it's within us. We've obviously had to survive historically and from an evolutionary point of view, but I think m- way more than that we've been communal, we've been empathetic mm-hmm. and and these things, but that there's this again because we don't Except within ourselves, like I mean, America, which which I love, has a violent history. There's a history of violence yes. here, and until we adm- admit that about ourselves, it pops up in the weirdest places. And of course, it's going to pop up in the sort of mental health uh, treatment world and addiction world because these are, again, historically the the people who've been excluded or or exiled or uh, devalued. So they're they're the most vulnerable, or children often too, right? Again, it's it's poor people and children. These are the people Mm -hmm. we've decided it's okay to basically treat like animals.
0: That was my exact follow-up question, which is we've made progress in many other aspects of, of the mental health industry, just taking that one example of people being exiled and excluded, why is it still okay? that and why do we as a society deem it okay for a treatment for Im- either the impoverished or ch- or adolescents to be conducted that way?
1: Yeah, so I I think, and this is one thing I discovered writing the book, is that, that it's a bit of a myth that we move from the moral failure model, that it's kind of this singular line that we move from the moral failure model to the brain disease model, which, you know, makes sense. That's, I guess, an improvement, you know, that Mm -hmm. we're supposed to treat people with a disease compassionately, like they have diabetes or cancer. That's the idea. So when you unpack this, though, it's actually a little more interesting than that. If you look at it, we still treat it as a moral failing, you know, where you look at the prison population, and something like 20% of people in prison still do the to today are in for drug charges. I'm sure it's another 20, 30, I I 40 percent. I don't have the figures in front of me, but who are in there either to get money for drugs or who were under the influence of a drug while they committed their crime. Yeah. And the drugs are expensive because they're illegal. They call that the prohibition price, which only really mm-hmm. serves drug dealers. It creates this huge profit.
0: The whole economy. It's, the, whole, yeah. the whole
1: drug economy is based on prohibition. If you made them uh, drugs legal tomorrow, it that would, would collapse. It would collapse, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not sure there would still be black markets, but you would see a, a huge decrease in the sort of theft and criminality that often goes mm-hmm. along with,
0: with and the violence this. as well. We and hear about yeah,
1: and the violence. So, so okay. So we've just proven basically that that we have both a moral failure model and a disease model. But then you look at the disease model. If I have a chronic relapsing brain disease that's kind of like a sentence in its own right like I can't (laughs) I can't like fix my brain I can't like get in there and it's chronic and it's relapsing and I'll have it forever I mean even those first it's so funny because AA helped kind of bring about this new enlightened perspective that that of the disease model which was an improvement but they didn't maybe see that it was going to create just another trap though in a way they're writing in their first edition of the book, like, we who have recovered, you know, we want to show you how we recovered. Like, they're talking about having recovered. Nowadays, you go to an A meeting, they're like, no, 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 whoa, 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 you never recover. This is a lifelong thing. Yeah,
0: it's, we're addicts. Mm-hmm.
1: We're addicts. And so even, and this is where, where I would sort of even take issue with some of the adverse childhood experience, sort of social de- determinants. Not that those things aren't true. Those things are true. But that's just behaviorism. That's just sort of stimulus response that's that's environmental determinism, so now, whether it's medical you know biological determinism or environmental determinism so mm-hmm. so even the way out of biological determinism is the environmental determinism there's always determinism, so how do we ever recover then and yeah we know from experience people recover through this miraculous revelation. I mean, I don't know. I don't know why people recover. There, there's no other way to describe it, but it's a miracle. Mm-hmm. And it involves community. It involves some kind of surrender. It involves all these things that have nothing to do with with medicine or very little to do with morals. I mean, the the people I know who are who are kids. I, I, know Maya Salavitz takes issue with the fact that an AA do a moral inventory that you wouldn't have someone with cancer or diabetes to have to do a moral inventory. I think that's kind of that's
0: such a big part of adolescent treatment is the accountability letter. You, you get in, you write this right. giant letter of everything you've done wrong and you read it to your parents.
1: You're a such, teenager. Yeah. You're a teenager. You did nothing wrong. You did nothing yeah. wrong. So we pathologize everything which is why, again, I don't like the disease model. So we pathologize, what do they call it for, for adolescents, like conduct disorder or oppositional mm-hmm. defiance. We're yeah. pathologizing normal teen rebelliousness. Mm-hmm. It's normal. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong. And, and our, our, again, addiction and mental health problems, they don't, they don't occur out of a vacuum. They're not genetic. They occur mm-hmm. out of a context. They, can, they occur out of family systems. Which when you're talking about young people, when you're talking about our childhoods, that's that's really not something we're responsible for. Yeah. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that blaming our parents is the is the is the key, because frankly they're just gonna blame their parents, we're gonna blame <laughs> their parents, they're gonna blame their parents, but mm-hmm. but at least we kind of see like Oh, I see where this started. I see these yeah. patterns. I see how I'm repeating these patterns because those were my role models. Like, oh, ah, I see. So, so what I think is we we're getting to a new kind of frontier. So we've gone through the moral failure model. We've gone through the disease model. We've we've we're we're, we're kind of rushing through the social determinate model, which includes those family systems, even. And I think we're getting to something even more transcendent, even more powerful, which is turning around and changing these things. Like mm-hmm. we can we can change our family. We can change the world. We can change the conditions that lead to so much suffering. I I literally just in the last probably couple of months have have had a major change myself centered mm-hmm. around the idea that of suffering in the world is totally avoidable. And people like take issue with it. And it's so funny because (laughs) it's almost like people are going to try to police my imagination. Like, you're you're not allowed to think that or you're not allowed to say that. Like, I honestly wholeheartedly believe, literally up until a couple of months ago, I would have said, well, life is suffering. There's a certain suffering of life. Mm. Like, there's a certain amount of pain that's normal. Like, I honestly don't believe that anymore. I don't believe it. It's all avoidable. We all create so much. We cause so much pain. We've suffered from pain. But I mean, the real pain of the world is occurring in neighborhoods we've probably never been to, parts of the world most of us have probably never been to, that we're all intricately connected to. I mean, there's kids here in Los Angeles who go to bed hungry in one of the richest cities, in the richest country in the world and i believe i also happen to believe in something called open individualism that we're not actually just separate individuals but that we're actually one being one organism kind of experiencing itself subjectively from different points of view so my feeling is if there's kids starving in yemen or in los angeles that i feel that pain i actually believe that a lot of the pain of the world a lot of it are addiction problems are caused by the fact that 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 is us. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so
0: heightened by the level of news we're constantly consuming. Right. You can understand why stress rates rise, anxiety rates rise, because if you go back 200 years, you wouldn't have been hearing about all of these different things that are going on daily. It right. it makes sense. It's just amplified.
1: Well, and I believe though that those are signals like that in the same way, like Johan Hari says that addiction or sorry, well addiction, but that depression and anxiety are signals like that they would have been evolutionary signals. Like if we were separated from our tribe, we would have felt yeah. depressed and anxious. And that would have motivated us to find our way back. Mm-hmm. I believe in the same way that the, the, the earth is talking to us through the yeah. media perhaps. And it is, it is so chaotic, but there's a way to make sense of it. That if we have like a conceptual framework that basically says, you know, what the uh, children shouldn't suffer, you can be super basic about it. Children shouldn't suffer. We shouldn't mistreat women. And everyone mm-hmm. should be clothed, fed, and housed because we have mm-hmm. the ability and the resources to be able to do that. So that's like your starting point and yeah. that we live in a community. It's it's, it's a huge 8 billion person <laughs> community, but it's mm-hmm. a community and it's all connected. It's like that family system. And it's yeah. not occurring in these sort of little isolated
0: Vacuums, uh, yeah.
1: Vacuums that 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 we normally or have been taught to imagine ourselves as being. So, so yes. However disturbing the news is, I think it's important. I actually happen to think journalists are doing um, God's work, mm-hmm. trying to give voice in the same way that scientists, with their instruments, are telling us. Like, we're seeing some really disturbing things. They have to do it in this really kind of like detached dispassionate way, yeah. you know, I, my hair would be on fire and I'd be, <laughs> you know, screaming from the rooftops like, "We need to change now!" and and I, and I see a lot of positive things, but I believe we won't solve the addiction and mental health problems until we solve these kind of larger problems. We just won't. We won't. And that and that drugs don't cause addiction. That something like less than one percent of you know we we're blaming big pharma. We're always looking for kind of things to point our fingers to, and we're missing the whole the bigger picture that less than 1% of people who who get prescribed opioids, for example, who didn't already have a substance use problem, become dependent on those drugs. So it's none of the things we thought it was. It's none yeah. of the things we thought it was.
0: It's crazy. So before we go into kind of navigating adolescent addiction and kind of steps you can take to work through that, I want to quickly ask your opinion on wilderness therapy and and that that form of treatment because I feel it's a, a very interesting perspective to add to the to the show as I've had a couple of girls on that that went through that themselves.
1: Well, this is and this is part of you, you mean the therapeutic community, sort of boot camp, tough love. Yeah.
0: So you the the gooning where your your parents watch as two men come into your room and they they pick you up they put you in a van they take you to utah montana colorado these places and then you carry on your back a tarp filled with the spoon you whittled and your your sticks you used to make your fire, fire so you can earn the privilege of dinner that night with with young adults that have graduated college and love being in the woods you see a therapist that doesn't necessarily have their doctorate once a week and you're there for 6 to 8 weeks with no contact no no clothing no you have the one pair of outfit that they give you but no no shelter no parents no yeah. no contact and then and then you leave and you're you're often sent to therapeutic boarding schools or residentials or other long term treatment
1: I think I think it should be illegal Yeah I think it should be outlawed uh, entirely what's interesting is is like a lot of things it's so close to being like there's there there is something there
0: yeah and that that's, it's like you breaking down the the hierarchy of needs you can see why someone could build up healthier connections and healthier yeah. ways to get that love and belonging and but nature, it's slightly missing the mark. Nature's yeah. good
1: <laughs> Rites of passage what happened to all the mm-hmm. rites of rights of passages and 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 initiations like there's yeah. a role for something that looks kind of like that but that's the that's the shadow. And again, it's, you're
0: missing the willingness, the choice to go, all of these things that make it a successful experience.
1: Consent, you know, being, being, being probably the most important thing, because I'm sure how many young people would want to do that. Like, hey, or you, it's how you presented it. It's like, hey, we've been living in this part of the world. So wrong, we've become so disconnected. And how would you like an opportunity to go, you know, connect with others to connect with nature, Mm -hmm. to learn about yourself to learn about the world and you know through philosophy and storytelling and and that it that 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 you could have a situation that was challenging but that didn't need to be cruel. So it's 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 all these little nuances and it's because the people who are delivering those programs aren't aren't right with themselves. They yeah. don't know themselves and they don't know their own they don't they think they're doing good. They don't believe yeah. that they're capable of violence and abuse, which is exactly mm-hmm. what they're doing.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and they're told they're doing good, constantly right. reinforced by families. And and I think it's also a really interesting thing, kind of like Stockholm syndrome, esque, where these girls come out of this and they're transformed. Yeah. They believed it saved their lives because when they're they were at home, they were miserable, they were yeah. isolated, they were they were navigating all these things which were somehow worse. Than this experience in the middle of the woods.
1: Imagine you could have all these young people going to like plant trees and like you yeah. know saving the world. Like there's so many
0: volunteering, volunteering.
1: Mm-hmm. So like the Peace Corps. There's so many mm-hmm. great opportunities that would have all the positive benefits with none of the violence and abuse that and that so is so much so... less
0: expensive. Right. Like, there's no need for the hundred thousand dollars for not. those eighteen weeks there, however long you're there. There's it's, not. It's insane.
1: And so yeah, I think you know we're 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 missing rites of passage. We're missing kind of those initiatory rituals and things like that. But no, I'm definitely not a fan. I would I would do whatever I could to help you know raise awareness around it. And thank yeah. you for for you doing that. If you ever need my help, or, you know if you want to go, I think we should actually go to these places and like liberate the kids.
0: That's what uh, Paris Hilton did. She went and she yeah. stood at the exact school that she attended where she was isolated and physically abused in Mount yeah. Norris and saw all this kind of stuff. And she went back with hundreds of people they yeah. stood outside with their microphones and they told their stories and it's, it's still there. The we, kids were still inside yeah. and- we, we need
1: to do more of that. And so again, it's until we can see that the homeless people on the street likely grew up in, in conditions that would, that would break most of us. They're living in a car with their mom, mm-hmm. or you know, who's who was sh- running from an abusive boyfriend or husband. Who you know, they're then given a choice to go to a to a homeless shelter, which are dangerous places, unsafe where they're not allowed to bring stuff, where they have to leave in the morning, where there's you know abuse and violence g- g- going on as well, as opposed to an actual home. Like like an actual apartment that's safe mm-hmm. that they can lock the door, things that w- anyone takes wants, for granted. takes yeah. for granted. So until we learn to see, and it's so funny because i'm I don't know if I'm atheist or definitely like spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. And though, you know, a lot of people would say this is a Christian nation. Well, I believe it's like matthew chapter twenty five verse like forty two or something like that. Jesus says, like, you know, you, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When, when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. You know, when, when I was in prison, you treated me badly. And his followers like, no, 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 we never did that. And he says, what you do to the least of thee, you do to me. And basically you're, you're going to go to hell. Like until we learn to see that those people who are struggling, who are suffering, are like literally the divine child that is. Mm-hmm
0: but uh, we're built off of as a as a country as a nation as a society all those right
1: things. like and and if we don't understand that like <laughs> we're just doomed we're doomed yeah. until we understand that
0: yeah Totally. Okay. Last segment kind of being adolescent addiction. Getting your expertise. You guys work with adolescents at Aloe House and I'll link all of that in the description so anyone that is pursuing adolescent addiction treatment or dual diagnosis treatment can pursue that. But I think primarily going from the perspective of a parent, what what can they do coming from a per- compassionate perspective and then maybe secondarily to a teen what steps can they take how can they get support if they they want support and they they recognize that that's what they're looking for and feel they need at this point
1: hmm. so i think for for parents it's really important that they see their role that it's too easy to point fingers that and again i mean they can blame their parents it's not like you know it, we're born into these roles and they've been modeled for us we're born into these relationships and these these ideals and you know cultural values like so it's not it's not that it's anyone's fault it isn't that we're trying to blame people but for that parent to see to become aware of of those impossible situations that they've created for their for their children and to understand why they've snapped, under, to understand why they've withdrawn, to understand mm-hmm. why they have escaped all of these, yeah. you know, it, it's, it, it, it's either snapping as the psychotic break, withdrawing as the depression, escaping mm-hmm. as the rebelliousness, you know, or it's just low level anxiety, or it yeah. might be even that kind of type A workaholism, which has its own health consequences yeah. as, as, as as well. And of course, adverse childhood experiences don't just cause addiction, they cause, you know, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, diabetes mm-hmm. uh, obesity, all of these other, you know, sexual promiscuity and, and things like that. So to see that, to accept somehow that they're involved in this world that might not be healthy, and to see how they might've been downloading a lot of that, those expectations onto their kids and kind of hurting them in a, in a, in a way. And, and that that's okay. Like as long as they stop now, like that's, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what's important now is that we process it and we get it, we get through it together as a family, like addiction is a family problem. It's, I think it goes even bigger. It's a city problem. It's an America problem. It's a global problem. It operates on all these scales, but one scale it never operates on is kind of an individual one. There's no such thing as as an individual. So that would be my advice is to find someone, even like Alexis's mom, this is her philosophy, or to call us if they ever want advice. And there's other family groups that I know of around the country. And so if you do have a link to to our website or whatever, people can find me, you know, and I would point them in in all these other directions. But to sort of learn to accept their own responsibility, right? And that models it for the young person too, who can then see well their part and everyone can kind of see their part and then most importantly alter their part to perhaps even start playing a new game, right? These are all games we're playing, these are the sort of social game. And the fact is the game we play is very unhealthy, it's very destructive. It's this game of, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins and it's it's killing us and it's making us miserable and there's more to yeah. life than that
0: completely so to a teen if they're listening that is was kind of in a similar headspace to you which is like i think i have a problem i think i might have to switch change something is it mm-hmm. their first step to go and sit in on an aa meeting is it to it talk might to a be parent?
1: it mm-hmm. might be and there's there there's young people aa meetings i remember one of the first things we did when we opened up our house i was like on the older edge of being young, 35, but we went mm-hmm. to the Ikipa, which is the young people in AA world convention. It was in San Francisco. We had so much fun. They were like dancing all night. We were going <laughs> to, to the diner and going to see these amazing talks by these like just mystics and just awesome mm-hmm. inspirational people. And, uh, and there was just this community of young people who maybe because the drugs are so strong nowadays and, and, uh, the stakes are so high. Like a lot of them are getting sober younger, like teenagers, and so they can find. Um, I mean, you're
0: surrounded by it at a younger age. Whether if we argue that nicotine is a drug, vaping is becoming yeah. increasingly common in in school settings and in yeah. in social situations, and so you're just inundated by it at such a young age. Yeah.
1: Find find your people. I mean, find find your passion. Find your people. I mean, hopefully your parents. Hopefully your parents kind of. Hopefully our parents give us that apology that you know we we deserve. But sadly, many of us aren't ever going to get. So learning how to kind of live without that. And I think that that's building a family of choice, right? We have our family of origin, and then we find our family of choice, and we we find some kind of passion and and some kind of interest in some kind of community of other people who share that interest, and that can be in AA, it can be outside of AA. Don't do things despite your parents. I mean, although it's it's a great way to hurt your parents, you really are only going to hurt yourself. And and that there is kind of a diminishing return to these drugs, which can can indeed be therapeutic. I mean, drugs served me well when my mom died for a long time, until they didn't. Till I'm crashing cars and I've lost all kind of sense of self of, of who I was and of what's important. And so I think it's, it's be safe. Number one, these drugs, particularly fentanyl kill people, they kill young people. This is, it's, it's almost like it's definitely an epidemic of, of deaths uh, amongst mostly young people. So the very first thing is be safe and find, find someone who kind of speaks your language, find someone who's, not going to judge you, and who understands who's not going to blame you, but instead sees the the sort of systemic problems. You know, again, we're we're born into this world where where it's this kind of like race from the maternity ward to the crematorium, and we're just yeah. supposed to like work at Starbucks and make money, like <laughs> or go to school, maybe like mm-hmm. that. It, there has to be more than that, and so I understand anyone who kind of wants to escape from that it makes perfect sense so just be safe try to find other people who who understand and there are there are people and hopefully people like yourself and you know what what we're doing you know we can kind of point people in the right direction so that they can find ways of of coping that aren't self-destructive because frankly as long as they stay alive what young people will eventually learn is that everything changes. And mm-hmm. who knows, we could be right on the brink of, of some kind of revolution where where the whole world changes. It kind of feels like that. Yeah. And to yeah. stick around because this this could be really interesting in the next kind of 30, 40, 50 years. Very interesting.
0: You yeah. can totally see it happening. It's I would or it feels like we're in the storm right now. So we'll have we to are. see. What we're in like
1: the been. birth canal and yeah. we're in that like transition state where mm-hmm. it's very difficult it's very difficult yeah. and and things could go very wrong but we're we're almost there we can see kind of the light at the end of the tunnel and mm-hmm. to stay curious stay interested like find find books find youtube high quality books high quality youtubes of people who've got a, a track record or some kind of uh, substance and intelligence to them who will set them off on these paths of, I guess, enlightenment or liberation or seeking that that to be a to be a seeker, which sometimes involves drugs and often doesn't. That the seeking is what's important, and just don't give up. Try to stay stay interested, stay excited, stay enthusiastic. And and I understand when people aren't. I think I've gone through different kind of dry spells and i'm at this point in my life i'm 46 years old where i'm i'm extremely en- enthusiastic and i'm i'm on this path and learning so much and so it's never too late things always change things just mm-hmm. stick around stick around and things will will change and and the best uh, advice I could and and I know how hard it is it's different than my generation gen x it was different for millennials and I know it's even harder for for the n- newest generation but you know if you can become independent where we're not dependent on our parents where there can be all those unhealthy strings attached to almost everything that in its own right is very liberating where we can't kind of be criticized or controlled because we're Autonomous. I mean, we're autonomous within a community and we have our own responsibilities and accountabilities, but we're not kind of beholden to parents who, who might not be ready to kind of make that um, leap themselves and to kind of, it's very humbling. It's very humbling to have to admit that you might have got it wrong.
0: Yeah yeah it's it's for so many it's it's their worst fear to have done your child wrong or misled them or yeah. made a mistake and right. so it's completely understandable why that's the the scariest thing to to admit that and there's it's it's downhill from that point when you admit that and you can move forward and repair the relationship rather than continuing It's easy after
1: that, that i mean it's downhill in the sense <laughs> that you're just coasting like they yeah. think that that's they're, they're gonna catch on fire if they admit that they made a mistake, but really they're going to be free. Like that's again, how this isn't in kind of a, an individual isolated thing. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. system thing. So the young person hopefully creates, sparks this conversation, shakes the, the matrix a little bit, I suppose. And that the parent kind of takes the opportunity to themselves also open themselves and kind of become vulnerable and become Fluid and ready to change. Like there, there are big kind of earth changes. I think way beyond our control. And the fact is, and that's scary for people. They don't like mm-hmm. to admit that they're out of control, or that it's right up there with having got it wrong. Like I've got it all wrong, and I'm not in control. I mean, there's yeah. there's forces at work. I think in the earth that are trying to kind of wake us up, and it's very disturbing and though the nice thing is once we're awake it becomes much easier to deal even like with that information you were talking about like it fits you know mm-hmm. like look at i feel the suffering of the world we become open to that but it doesn't destroy me it just if 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 anything it just gives me more motivation to to fight and to fight for what's right and to fight for what i believe in and to speak my mind and i think that that's, that's the most important thing i think it, you know, talking about kind of open individualism, if we understand that we are not just our isolated selves, but that we are everything, we are kind of the whole universe experiencing itself, we're not like afraid of dying anymore. Like we're not yeah. afraid of anything. So that's this huge empowering sense that we get. Now the flip side is that we feel the pain of the world. That's the trade-off. Yeah. That when we were imagining we were isolated individuals, all we felt was our own pain. We couldn't quite put our finger on where it was coming from. Because again, I, I think it's coming from way beyond that uh, boundary we created for yeah. ourselves. But we, we open ourselves to, to all kinds of things and to amazing opportunities and to be part of this thing that is so much bigger than ourselves. And that's meaning, that's love, that's all the things in life that actually matter.
0: Absolutely. I think that's the perfect place to, to kind of wrap it up and, and kind of let people have a really strong takeaway to, to go with. But thank you so much for joining me. This is one of the most phenomenal episodes I've recorded and then so many takeaways for teens and parents and anyone that's looking to to change their life for the better and really build that life worth living. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Sadie. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Of
0: course. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please share with a friend, family member, or post about it on social media. Make sure you're subscribed to the show so you don't miss any future episodes and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to let me know what you think. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next Friday.